this morning, I am pleased to say that we are returning to our normal series in the book of John. And so please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8, and we'll pick up where we left off before COVID. John chapter 8. And listen as I read from verses 12 to 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. And for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we ask for your help now as we come to study this passage, that you will illuminate our understanding. Pray that you will help me in the preaching of it. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of expression. And will we all benefit? thereby. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we are resuming in John, and I said we'll pick up where we left off, but if you are an observant and astute person, you'll notice that we left off before COVID at John 7, 52, and we picked up at John 8, 12. The reason for this is that the manuscript evidence seems to indicate, as there's probably a notation in your Bible, that there's some question about the, uh, uh, the authenticity of that section. 
from John 7.53 to John 8.11. The manuscript evidence seems to indicate that most likely this was actually not part of the original autograph that John composed. And so I have decided just to pass over that um, and we're not going to deal with that in our series here. Therefore, we're picking up at John 8 and verse 12. And we're going all the way to verse 30, that section that I just read. The context, by way of reminder, is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Throughout chapter 7, Jesus has already been publicly teaching at the Feast of Booths, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he resumes his discourse. We see in chapter 8 and verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them. He's just resuming that teaching that he's doing at the Feast of Booths, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he resumes his discourse with the second I am statement of John's gospel. Many have noted that there are seven I am statements in John's gospel. The first one that we've already seen was I am the bread of life back in John 6, 35. And in John 8, 12, we see the second one. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Of course, that's the main idea that we are looking at this morning is that Jesus is the light of the world and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That provides the context, and that's the, the main idea of this whole section, just as basically in John chapter 6, if you ask what John chapter 6 is about, it's about Jesus being the true bread of life. And there's many other things in John chapter 6, but that's the unifying central idea. So it is with this section that we're looking at today. Jesus as the light of the world is the central idea here in this section of John 8 that we're looking at. But the way that the main idea is developed here in John chapter 8 is by contrasting Jesus as the light of the world with the Pharisees who are in darkness. And so immediately after Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, in come these Pharisees whom elsewhere Jesus calls blind guides, the blind leading the blind. And these guys are indeed blind. They are in darkness. And the rest of this section, verses 13 through 30, essentially bears that out. And what that does, we, we see the darkness of the Pharisees in contrast to what Jesus has said at the beginning of this passage, which is that he is the light. And so Jesus says, I am the light. And then in come the Pharisees and their darkness, and the rest of the section shows their darkness to draw a contrast between them and Jesus the light. So that's kind of what's happening, big picture, in this section of John chapter 8. So let's begin by examining ways in which the Pharisees are in darkness. In summary, they make superficial judgments according to verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, Jesus says. I judge no one. So they're judging a book by its cover, so to speak. They're judging just on the surface of something. We read in the Proverbs, if anyone speaks before listening, it is his folly and shame. We read also in the Proverbs, one man sounds right until another man stands to answer him. What we see taught 
uniformly through the scripture is that things are not always what they appear on the surface. But this is the way that the world so often judges. This is the way that the Pharisees here are judging. They're just judging superficially, according to the flesh. We could look back at John chapter 5, or pardon me, John chapter um, 7 and verse 24, where Jesus said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, the Pharisees are judging by appearances as opposed to by right judgment. I'm going to expand on that now. That's the main summary, though, which is the darkness, right? If you make a wrong judgment, you're ignorant. You are not in a place of knowledge. You are not in a place of understanding. You are not in an enlightened place. When you make a wrong judgment, you are in error or in darkness. And so that's fundamentally where the Pharisees are. Jesus is the light of the world, but the Pharisees are in darkness, making wrong judgments and having erroneous thinking about a lot of things. Let's look specifically at the superficial judgments they make, which are not according to right judgment. First is, they say in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. All right, now before we jump on the Pharisees, we have to realize they're actually basically quoting Jesus. In John chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus said that. So now the Pharisees are turning and throwing that in his face and say, you alone bear witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But in John chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus was saying, if I, and literally I alone, bear witness about myself, and not also the Father, in other words, if I think something, and I'm the only human that thinks it, and even God doesn't think it, then I'm wrong. And in John chapter 5, Jesus goes on to say, but my Father also does bear witness, and so me and my Father bear witness. So that's what Jesus meant in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 7, or pardon me, in John chapter 8, the Pharisees come and say, you alone are bearing witness about yourself. Therefore, your testimony is not true. Well, first of all, they forgot what Jesus said, that his father also bears witness. So first of all, Jesus is not alone bearing testimony about himself. But again, as we can't see God, in terms of verification on a horizontal plane in an earthly sense, if there's only one person and God saying a certain thing, it's very hard to verify it on the horizontal plane. And so one of the problems with the Pharisees thinking is that they understood what Jesus, uh, they understood the, the testimony of Jesus to be untrue simply because at least at that time and in that pocket, he was the only one testifying about himself rather than simply seeing it as invalid for legal purposes, right? Inadmissible in court. Jesus 
uh, says in verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So they mix up, they mix up validity and truth. Right? There's that question, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? If something is known only to God and one person, is it therefore untrue? No, it's not therefore untrue. It just can't be proved in court, right? But the, so the Pharisees are wrong on a whole bunch of counts here. First, they assume that the Father does not also testify of Jesus. Secondly, they assume um, that because there's not, in their minds, verifiable evidence by two or more human witnesses, therefore what Jesus is saying can't actually even be true. So that's just a logical error, but that keeps them in darkness and manifest the darkness that they're in. Secondly, verse 14, they are ignorant as to Jesus' origins and purposes. Jesus says, I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. If we look back to 752, which actually would only be a few verses prior if we omit that disputable section of text in between. In 752, the Pharisees rebuked those who went to arrest Jesus, saying, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the assumption of the Pharisees was that Jesus is just merely from Galilee, which is again, the most superficial judgment. First of all, they should have, the fact that he is from Galilee should actually pique their curiosity about Jesus' identity rather than be a showstopper, which leads them to think there's no way he could be the Messiah. Because if we turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt and into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There is actually going to be a mighty work of God concerning Galilee. And the next verse starts a very familiar passage to all of us, Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so there is actually a profound Old Testament connection between Galilee and the Messiah. So even if they assumed he was only from Galilee, that should actually pique their curiosity and their interest in this person who is causing such a stir. Perhaps now, this is the event in which the people who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Perhaps this is the time in which God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. But in any case, Jesus was not ultimately from Galilee. More ultimately than being from Galilee, Jesus was from Bethlehem. And of course, we remember Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. If they had known that Jesus was from Galilee and more ultimately Bethlehem, that combo of Isaiah 9-1 and 
Micah 5, 2, and the stir that Jesus was causing and the miracles that he was doing and the purity and profundity of his teaching, all of this should have caused them really and truly to consider perhaps this is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. But most ultimately, Jesus was not from Galilee nor Bethlehem, but from heaven. Many times in John's Gospel, we see something like this phrase, where I came from and where I am going. In John chapter 13 and verse 3, we see the intended sense of these phrases very clearly. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, etc., etc. This is what is meant by all these references. We're going to see it come up repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John. Where I came from, where I'm going. You don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. All, you're going to see this repeated so many times. And the sense of it is what we just read in John 13 and verse 3. Jesus came from God and is going back to God. John is a gospel that highlights the Trinitarian unity between the Son and the Father and the Spirit and the coming of the Son from the glories of heaven into this world to live and to die and to rise for us in our salvation and to ascend back into heaven. This is a major theme of John. Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God, but the Pharisees did not. So the Pharisees made some logical errors with respect to what Jesus meant when he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. They also were ignorant as to Jesus' origins and purpose. They thought he was just a guy from Galilee, but actually he was the son of God from heaven, come here for a purpose and was to ascend back to heaven. They were also ignorant of Jesus' father, i.e. God. Look at verse 19. They said to him, therefore, who is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, right? You don't know my father, i.e. God. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Though the Pharisees claimed to know God, they in fact did not know God. This was evidenced by their rejection of Christ. No one who rejects Christ knows God. And no one who knows Christ does not know God. They go together as Father and Son within the glorious Trinity. The Pharisees also were on the path to hell. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. What this seems to mean is Jesus is saying, I will go away, which is an obvious reference to his death, resurrection, and ascension. But when he says, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, what seems to be meant by this is that they will keep on seeking the Messiah, but there won't be another Messiah forthcoming, and so they will die 
in their sin. Just as earlier in John it says that you will seek me, but you will not find me. This seems to be the sense of it. These people were ostensibly looking for a Messiah, seeking a Messiah. Jesus comes, they reject him, and Jesus says, well, look, I'm going to go away, and you're going to keep seeking the Messiah, and you're going to die in your sin. The Pharisees were on the path to hell. What do they have to do to end up in hell? Nothing. Stay the course. Keep doing what you're doing. Walking in darkness. In verse 23, we see that they are part of the unbelieving world referred to time and again in John. We've talked about this a lot, but just to refresh your memory since it's been a while since we've been in John. John uses that phrase, the world, to refer not um, necessarily to all people everywhere, not necessarily to the physical universe, but to the sinful society of man organized together without reference to God. An ungodly system of human beings organized together apart from or in opposition to God. These Pharisees are part of that world comprised of those who hate Jesus because he testifies against them that their works are evil, as John chapter 7 and verse 7 tell us. And then the Pharisees are intentionally ignorant as to Jesus' identity. Look at verse 25. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus had already told them in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in fact, the antagonism that appears here toward Jesus in John chapter 8 is so strong because this is not the first encounter that the Pharisees have had with Jesus. They've, they've run into him a number of times before. They've heard much of his other teaching. It's not as if by this point Jesus hasn't told them who he is. And so Jesus is basically, is basically just saying, I already told you. They say, who are you? Jesus says, I am such and such. And they dispute with him back and forth. And then they say, who are you? Jesus says, just what I told you from the beginning. This is another case of willful unbelief. The willful unbelief referred to throughout the scriptures. That those who do not believe in Christ, having heard the gospel, do not believe in Christ because they will not believe in Christ. Not because there is insufficient evidence. Not because they are simply too smart. Not because they are not in need of a savior. Not because there are more than one way to heaven. Not for any of these other ostensible reasons that they give. They do not come because they will not come. We read back in John chapter 3 about this willful unbelief. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so what we see is that there is this desire to avoid the light, just like, as I mentioned when I preached on that passage, just like a cockroach flees from the light when we turn on 
the lights in the morning or something, if there are big cockroaches in the kitchen or wherever else, you turn on the light and they start to run. This is what the unbelieving world does when we preach about Christ Jesus. They don't want to hear it. They willfully reject. This is the natural inclination of man unless God intervened by his spirit. And this is what the Pharisees are doing here. Who are you? As if Jesus hasn't told them already. And so Jesus says, just what I told you from the beginning. I've been telling you over and over, but you will not believe. So we have a portrait here of those who claim to know God, but in fact do not. They pretend there is not enough evidence to believe in Jesus specifically, but maintain their devotion to a being they call God. In reality, if they do not know the Son, they do not know the Father. Rejecting what the scriptures say about Jesus' origins in heaven and his rescue mission on earth, they are unbelievers who will die in their sins, though they're actually very religious. That's the darkness that the Pharisees are in. There is, in fact, compelling evidence, even within the scripture itself, without even turning yet to extra-biblical evidences. There is compelling evidence, even within scripture itself, to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. From Galilee, by Bethlehem before that, and heaven before that, he is the light of the world. No matter how enlightened people who reject this claim to be, the reality is that they, like the Pharisees, are in utter darkness, are in darkness now and will be in utter darkness forever, shut out of God's kingdom in that utter darkness forever. Unless, as Jesus says, they believe. Are you walking in darkness? Or are you, as those described in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, one who was dwelling in a land of deep darkness, but upon whom a light has shone? Have you seen a great light? We see in the example of the Pharisees here in John chapter 8 that one can be very religious. One can ostensibly be very devoted to God and yet be in darkness. You don't have to be out there living in sin, so to speak, to be living in sin. A sinful lifestyle can take the form of an openly rebellious person who flouts God's law. Or a sinful lifestyle can take the form of a religious person who simply will not come to Jesus because they don't want to admit that their works are evil. Like a cockroach, they run from the light instead of running towards the light because they will not admit that their works are evil. And that's a prerequisite for coming to Jesus. What we see from this passage is that both will die in their sins unless they believe. The openly unbelieving, irreligious sinner who flouts God's law and the religious person 
who ostensibly loves God but has no interest in the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel because they do not want to admit that their works are evil. Both, both will die in their sins unless they believe. Believe in what? Or believe in who? Let's return now to the main idea. We've seen the darkness of the Pharisees. Let's return now to the main idea. Jesus is the light of the world. This is, to, this is what is to be believed. That Jesus is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's again work our way through the passage, viewing it from this lens. Let's explore the meaning and breadth of this truth that Jesus is the light of the world and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Obviously, in contrast to the ignorance of the Pharisees, which is called darkness, light implies knowledge. One who follows Jesus, therefore, is one who has knowledge, one who believes certain propositions which are in fact correct. It has to be this way by definition, because if the follower of Jesus did not believe the things that Jesus taught, but rather were in the same ignorance as the Pharisees, the follower of Jesus would be in just as much darkness as the Pharisees. And so obviously, for someone to become a follower of Jesus, they have to believe certain propositions. Christianity is more than intellectual agreement with certain propositions, but it's certainly not less than it. Specifically, in this passage, we see that to believe that Jesus is the light of the world, to follow him, and not walk in darkness, but have the knowledge that gives life, which is the sense of that phrase, having the light of the way. To believe that Jesus is the light of the world, to follow him, to not walk in darkness, but have the knowledge that gives life, involves, among other things, believing that even if only the Father and the Son were to testify to Jesus' identity, that testimony would nevertheless be true, no matter what the human courts say. Human courts might pull in one human witness like Jesus and everybody gather together against him as they did at his mock trial. And the human courts might convict him as a liar and a blasphemer. But do you realize at that trial over which Pilate presided, there were two testifying to who Jesus is, the Father and the Son. And even though the human court convicted him, Jesus was right. To believe in Jesus, that he is the light of the world, to follow him, to no longer walk in darkness, but have the knowledge that gives light, is to know that even if only the Father and Son, even if only the Godhead testified to something, it would be true. Do a thought experiment here. What if literally every person in the world, literally every person in the world was an unbeliever? But what if one day you picked up a Bible and you read 
and you realize that literally no one in the world believes this. Literally no one in the world testifies to the truth of this. Would it be worth believing? Yes, it would. Because God testifies. And when God testifies, it's true. When the Father and the Son testify together, it's a true testimony. And so we take God's world over the verification and validation and examination of human courts. Secondly, we need to know, and we will know, if we are believing that Jesus is the light of the world and we're following him and we're not walking in darkness. We will believe and we will know where Jesus came from and where Jesus returns to. Galatians 4.4 says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus' origin was a heavenly glory with the Father, but he descended, took on flesh, and dwelt among us with a purpose, or for a purpose, which was to redeem us. This he did by living righteously, as we read earlier in the service, by fulfilling the demands of God's law on our behalf. And then dying a penalty-bearing death in our place, that the righteous demands of the law might be fulfilled so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is the purpose for which Christ left his heavenly glory. That's where he came from, and he was going to the cross and then ultimately returning to the Father. As Hebrews 10, 12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is where Jesus came from and where he was going. You're walking in darkness if you don't know that, if you don't believe that, if you don't embrace that. To believe that Jesus is the light of the world, to not walk in darkness, but to have the knowledge that gives life involves having this knowledge that Jesus came from heavenly glory to redeem us from the curse of the law and then ascended back to the Father's way. And knowing that who Jesus is, where he came from, where he's going, the believer therefore knows God. For as Jesus says here, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. So if we know Jesus, we know the Father also. It is those who believe Jesus' testimony about his identity, who embrace his origins and purpose, who implicitly therefore admit their sins, believing that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and believing that Jesus came into the world to save me implies that I am a sinner and therefore it is those who believe Jesus testimony about his identity who embrace his origins and purpose who implicitly admit their sins and receive Jesus righteousness in the place of their unrighteousness and who lay hold of the atonement that he made on the cross as sufficient atonement for their sins, it is they who know God. To believe otherwise, to think otherwise, is to judge not with right judgment, 
It's to judge by appearances, to judge by the flesh, it's to be in the darkness of the Pharisees. But to believe that is to embrace that Jesus is the light of the world. That, to embrace that, all that I just said is to walk in the light as opposed to the darkness. When you do know these things and you embrace them, you are no longer doomed to die in your sins. For there is a resurrection of hope for you. You have transferred your citizenship from this world to heaven so that you're no longer from below as the Pharisees were in this passage. Jesus says that in John 8, 23. You've transferred your citizenship from here to heaven so that you are no longer of this world. You're in it, but not of it. We'll get to that later in John. You are now no longer walking in darkness, but you are walking in light. You have the light or the knowledge that leads to life, or that gives life. That's the sense of it. So again, I ask you, are you walking in darkness? Are you approaching Jesus like the Pharisees? You're ostensibly religious, but you have all these reasons why you don't believe. You don't really know who Jesus is, nor do you really care to know who Jesus is. You're happy in this intentional ignorance, always running away from the light, avoiding the light, hating the light. Are you walking in darkness? Whether you are an irreligious person who flouts God's law, or whether you are a religious person like the Pharisees, who is very theoretically committed to religion, to God, but doesn't deal with Jesus, because to do so would be to admit that your works are evil. If you are walking in darkness, whether that irreligious darkness or that religious darkness, you will die in your sins. But Jesus is the light of the world. Come into the light. Admit that your works are evil. That's the only reason why we hate to come. But if you can get over that, admit that your works are evil. Come to Jesus. Believe that he left heavenly glory to redeem us from our sins and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Embrace his origins and purpose. Embrace his testimony about himself, corroborated by the Father in heaven. Embrace all of these things. See, every one of you, the light emanating from the person of Jesus. We typically think of cloud as obscuring light and creating, in some sense, darkness. But the pillar of cloud which the Israelites followed in ancient days was referred to in Exodus 14 as giving light. Jesus is like that pillar of cloud. It is in him and through him that we have the presence of God with us in this life. It is him that we follow. It is him that protects us and keeps us from losing our way. It is he who, having known him, we have come to have the light or knowledge that leads to life. Embrace Jesus, therefore, and everything that John 8 and the rest of Scripture says about him. Don't walk in the darkness of open unbelief, nor in the darkness of a religiosity without a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. Believe and know Jesus. Walk in the light. Embrace his origin and purpose to come from heaven and atone for sin 
and return to the Father's right hand. He is a great Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior.